Hi, I'm Paul Haverschrud, host of The Cost of Living. It's a show about money and how it shapes our lives. In big ways, like why inflation could get worse if we all make more money. Here's the hard truth in all of this. Workers are going to have to eat that real wage loss. And small ways, like what's the fastest way to order fast food? That first Big Mac that comes out of the kitchen is going to the drive-thru. Check out The Cost of Living. We're on CBC Listen or wherever you get podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This is CBC Radio. From coast to coast through the CBC Radio Network and around the world on shortwave, this is As It Happens. Good evening, this is As It Happens. As It Happens. This is As It Happens. As It Happens. Hello. This is As It Happens. Hello, I'm Neil Cooksaw. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happened, the October edition. You're probably familiar with our archive show, As It Happens, in which we venture into the vast As It Happens vaults and return with some of the most memorable moments from our program's long history. Well, we're bringing you a special new As It Happened podcast in this feed, where we will review some of the most surprising and fascinating conversations from the month that was, and dust off a few gems from our archives. We certainly know that it has been a painful month for many of you, and as we cover those difficult stories and continue to cover them from Gaza and Israel, we wanted you to hear here some of the conversations that brought us some levity this month, some joy and laughter, but also sparked our curiosity. In this episode, we've assembled a cast of performers who know how to put on a show, from the theatre to the basketball court. You'll hear my conversation with the pet owner whose cat was certainly ready to rumble when I asked it to demonstrate its world record-breaking purr. And we have ringside seats to an epic showdown. The Australian man involved explains why he went toe-to-toe with a seven-foot-tall, absolutely jacked kangaroo. And we didn't have a dog in this fight, but he did. This is As It Happened, the October edition. When you ask most people about their favorite Shakespeare plays, they'll say King Lear, Hamlet, Romeo and Juliet, and those plays are fine. But I'm into his old stuff before he got popular. Taming of the Shrew, Titus Andronicus, Henry VI, Part Two, you know, the stuff he wrote in the garage. Plus, most people are just into his writing, but I am also into his acting. Well, I haven't seen it, so I guess I'm more into knowing that he acted and talking about knowing about it. His written words obviously live on centuries after his death, but the stages the bard performed on were thought to be long gone until renovations began at St. George's Guildhall in Norfolk, England. In October, Neil spoke to Tim Fitzhyam, the creative director of that theater. What do you see in your mind's eye? What do you feel when you transport yourself back? Well, it's really interesting that you asked that because the floor that we found, so we've got the the oldest working theatre in the country, in England. Uh, The first recorded performance of the theatre is 1445. So what you would have seen when you walked in through the the door of the hallway is you would have walked into a corridor. Uh, We now know that. And then you would have turned right into what would have been like a great hall that you would see on kind of programmes like, I don't know, um, Game of Thrones or, (laughs) uh, or, or The Last Kingdom. You would have been a big 
hall that would have had feasting going on in it. And at the end of the hall, there would have been a slightly raised area where the big posh people would have sat, mm. very much in the, in, the, in the kind of Game of Thrones way. And then down the end of the hall, in the doorway that we've just come through, is where the players would have got their kit out and started doing their shows. And that, for us, is the part that we're really interested in, because we know that in our theatre, in 1592, 1593, William Shakespeare's company played a visit there. So what we've now uncovered, by uncovering this original floor, is the very boards on which the bard trod. And you, that's really exciting. You believe, you believe this. But let's let's go back a little bit more. A couple of weeks ago, you're preparing yeah. for renovations. Um, yeah. You've seen these boards before, but an archaeologist got a closer look at them. So how are they time stamping these? So the archaeologists have used a combination of things to get the age of the boards. First of all, we've used scientific analysis, which is called tree ring data, dendrochronology. And what they do is they take a tiny sample of the of the wood and the distance between the rings of the tree uh, is part of a sequence of, of, of tree ring data. And it takes us right the way back through history. And that dated the boards scientifically to between 1417 and 1425. Uh, mm-hmm. Secondly, we've got the documentary evidence, and that ties in with that date between 1417 and 1425. So all those things tie together, the documents, the science, and the construction, uh, to to give us a really clear, very firm date of uh, 1417 to 1425. That's long before Shakespeare's time, though. So what proof is there that he himself was performing there in in the... 1590s. So first of all, and perhaps most importantly, we've got the borough of Kingsland and West Norfolk account books, and they show us that in 1520, uh, 1592-1593, Shakespeare's company was play, was paid to come play the theatre mm-hmm. in King's Lynn. So that's the first piece of evidence. The second piece of evidence is that we know that Shakespeare was actually an actor at that point because he gets a bad review. Uh, your listeners might have heard of the phrase the upstart crow. Well, that actually comes from a bad review in 1592 of Shakespeare as an actor. It refers to Shakespeare as a player mm-hmm. rather than a writer, which is really important because it proves that he's not just writing for the company uh, that he's performing with in 1592. He's a player in that company as well as the writer. That was Neil speaking to Tim Fitzhigham, the creative director of St. George's Guildhall in Norfolk, England. Mr. Fitzhigham probably knows all of Shakespeare's most famous lines, including, obviously, all the world's a stage. And our next performer really proves the wisdom of that line. She doesn't need to be on a literal stage to impress audiences around the world. She does it from her own home. In fact, she does it from the lap of the person who owns that home. Bella is a 14-year-old cat in Huntingdon, UK. She's also the new Guinness World Record holder in a very competitive category, loudest purr by a living domestic cat. Neil asked her owner, Nicole Spink, if we could hear Bella in action. Just see if I can get her going now. Oh. See, that's Bella. Uh, yeah, I, I can hear Bella. It's, I mean, it almost doesn't even, it's in the, it's in a growl category almost, right? When, when did yeah, you? Yeah, it's a deep, it's a really deep purr. And it's always like that? It's not, it doesn't change according to, no, you know, the mood? it's always been like that. Our it's, entire life, it's always been a 
a real deep, almost like nasally uh, purr. When was the first time you heard her yeah, purr we, like that? Uh, we have Bella from her being two years old. Mm-hmm. And she's now 14 now. So it's actually oh. 12, I think it's 12 years this week we've had her. Amazing. And she's always been loud. Um, from when we used to go and sit watching TV as a family, we had to turn the TV up because she'd always hear her. And she's just kind of, at nighttime, when she used to sleep on my bed, she's like a giant white noise machine <laughs> who just turns her way through. And I'm pretty sure she sat the, the children's asleep and they were babies. They'd just sleep near her and they'd be asleep listening to the cat purr. We mentioned Guinness. How did they go about recording her purr um, to make sure came, it broke a record? They had a, uh, a specialist team come out mm-hmm. and they had the recording equipment. And it had to be a meter off the, off the ground and a meter away from the cat. Mm-hmm. And they recorded her, her decibels. How many? How high? And, and she was 54.6 decibels. 54.6 decibels, which is a kind of equivalent to like a kettle boiling noise. <laughs> Were you proud in that moment? I'm so proud of her. She's, <laughs> she's always been such a lovely cat, and she deserves the, the, the kind of the, the claim to fame that she needs to have, really. But how do you get her to to purr on command? Um, basically, any kind of cuddles, um, any kind of fuss or attention, and food. Food well, is yeah. the big one for us. Yeah. I, I... That's, can't blame her. Can't blame her for that. How does the rest of your family, how do your children feel about having this this honor? My children are so excited. Um, they're in school today and I came to pick them up from school and I was like, you never believe what's happened. <laughs> and the media's kind of gone crazy and they're absolutely loving it, telling all their friends. Are they, they're, are they're they around? They're six and two? nine. They're six and nine. Are they, Sorry? Are, are they around? Do they would like, they yes, like to they comment? Are. Or would you like them to comment? If, if oh, you prefer I'm sure not. they would absolutely love yeah, to. Yeah, bring them over. <laughs> bring them over. I'll just put you on speaker for a second. Sure. So, this, I have Matilda, who is nine, and Eliza, who is six. Matilda, Eliza, I'm Neil, in, all the way over in Toronto in the As It Happens studio. I'm so excited we can speak. How do you feel about Bella's big honor? We are very proud of her. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Did you did you always think her purr was very loud? Yeah. What do you think we it's... We did because yeah? we always had to turn the TV up. <laughs> was that bothersome or did, you didn't mind? We didn't really mind because we love her. Oh. Well, listen, I want to thank you all for your time and for sharing a bit of Bella with us. Could you, if it's not too much of an imposition, could we hear Bella one more time? I can if I can find her again. She's been <laughs> <run> away <laughs> in true Bella style. She has gone somewhere. Let's see if we can find her. Thank you. <laughs> She's chasing me around the, the table at the moment. Here we go. Hi, Bella. So here's Bella. Here we go, Bella. Come here. Will she put on cue again? Bella. Thank you, Bella. I would cuddle <laughs> you if I could, but we appreciate we appreciate you sharing uh sharing a bit of yourself with us. Uh and to you as well, Nicole and the children. Thank you so much. Uh thank you very much. 
That was Nicole Spink and her cat Bella speaking and purring to Neil, respectively. You're listening to As It Happened, the October edition, a monthly podcast where we look and listen back at the month that was. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. As a freshly minted Guinness World Record holder, Bella the Cat is audibly pleased with her level of stardom and not looking for any side gigs. But if she wanted to parlay her newfound fame into a more public job, she might want to check in with her local sports team to see if they need a new mascot. It can really be a high-profile position if you do it the way Ellie the Elephant does. WNBA fans are stampeding to the Barclays Center Arena in Brooklyn, New York. And it's not just to see their New York Liberty basketball team put on a show. They want to see the team's mascot, Ellie the Elephant, throw down on the dance floor. Amelia Bain is one of Ellie's biggest fans. She's also a video editor and the host of a podcast about the WNBA called Let the Girls Play. Neil spoke with Ms. Bain about the popular pachyderm and her signature dance move. Well, there's this thing called the Ellie Stomp, uh-huh. which is during a timeout in the game. She comes out and like basically just struts around the court and then stomps a foot and the rest of the dance team pretends that like they're getting like knocked down by the force of Ellie Stomp. It's it's so great. <laughs> yeah, the rest of the dancers, we should say, like they work so well in tandem together. It's a fantastic performance. But in terms of interacting with the crowd, that's a big part of mascot life, certainly. What does Ellie do on that front? So when the game is, like, when they're playing basketball, Ellie is walking usually into the crowd, taking pictures with people, but not just, like, little kids. Everybody, all ages, people are loving Ellie. (laughs) But she also kind of flirts with the people sitting courtside. Yeah. She kind of grinds on the security guards that (laughs) stand to prevent people from running on the court. I don't know if you have seen, like, this is sort of an old reference, but like Fergie's London Bridge video course, where she's yeah. trying to get like... It's my co-host's yeah, it's favorite. Very that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it's, I'm just kidding. It's definitely that. <laughs> okay. So it's a full performance all around the court. You mentioned pictures. You sent us a great photo that you, you had a moment with Ellie up close and personal. I had a real moment. Yeah. My wife and I joke that we look happier in that photo than we do in like any of our wedding pictures. <laughs> and we look very happy in our wedding pictures. Just something magical about Ellie. You mentioned the talent that is inside that costume, but the team will not say who is inside. No, only it's that a real it's, Brooklyn mystery. It's a Brooklyn mystery. One person is playing the part. What are some of the theories out there about who this might be? My personal theory is whoever is in there is an incredible athlete, like really strong. This is not just anybody. This is somebody who's an incredible dancer, but a really athletic dancer. Do you think people really want it to be revealed or is it better if it if it stays a secret? I think some people want to know. Personally, I don't want to know. I think it's more fun if it's a secret because I I don't know. If I wonder if we knew who was in there if we would not see Ellie as this full character quite as much. 
That was Amelia Bain speaking with Neil about Ellie the Elephant, the mascot for the New York Liberty WNBA team. Despite her now international fame, Ellie is still down to earth. But Ellie's stardom did remind us of a cautionary tale from the As It Happens archives that, like an elephant, we could never forget. In 1979, Barbara Frum spoke with a chicken on the program, which isn't as weird as you'd think for As It Happens. Around these parts, it's pretty common to get a bird on the air. But this was no ordinary chicken. This was the San Diego chicken, the mascot of the San Diego Padres, the most popular chicken on the planet in 1979 who was able to talk. But when we caught up with the famous fowl, he was in hot water. I'll let former host Alan Maitland take it from here. KGB chicken of San Diego may have put all his eggs in one basket. For the last five years, the chicken has entertained the crowds at the San Diego Padres baseball games on behalf of KGB radio. But the mascot comedian has had his wings clipped by his employers in a quarter of a million dollar lawsuit over his chicken suit. The bird has been fired for taking his act on the road without the permission of the radio station, but he maintains that he purchased his chicken costume rights. Ted G. Anulas, the KGB chicken himself, is on the line from Beverly Hills. Any withdrawal symptoms? It must be tough to stop being a chicken after so many years. Oh, it certainly is difficult. It's a very disheartening experience knowing that the laughter's got to stop like this. But I'm trying to cope with it the best I can. But uh, I'm recouping, in, in so many words, recouping uh, my energies. And uh, I definitely intend to win this chicken suit. Why did your old employer, the radio station, want a monopoly on your chicken services? That's a good question, and I think the reason is because now the chicken is really becoming to be seen as a, as a nationwide, uh, continental celebrity for that matter, and maybe this was a chance for them to feel that they could really profit. They wanted this chicken to stay home and roost. Yes, uh-huh, and not only that, they also wanted to uh, commercialize on a, on a very high degree. In the last month alone, we've seen a We've seen a pro proliferation of 50,000 chicken coloring books, 25,000 chicken T-shirts, uh, 25,000 chicken glasses. Like I say, this is all in the last month, let alone my royalties are zero out of that. The station uh, feels the, that I'm not really worthy of uh, any royalty. But Not a single golden egg for this. Not a single golden egg for this. But uh, How does a nice Canadian boy from London, Ontario go foul in San Diego? Well, you know, there's this alter ego that comes through when I put on all that fur, you know, and uh, don the head and, uh, and hit out the, into the public. But uh, the chicken has become a folk hero in San Diego of sorts. And uh, right You now, should marry Big Bird and live happily ever after. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. The chicken enjoys being a bachelor. But I'll say this, uh, that uh, the image that's been created here is very nice, but I'm, fear I'm fearful of the craft commercialism that the station now wants to, uh, to employ on the chicken it may, may taint all of that. You branched out. Is that what started the crisis? Well, that's true, and uh, also the fact that the design of chicken suit that I wear, I purchased from the manufacturer, Alinko Products of Salt Lake City. And uh, I purchased those uh, quite a while ago, and the station disputes the fact that I bought anything more than the Brooklyn Bridge. So now, what's developed here, the station has fired me from my contract. Uh, they filed a quarter-million-dollar lawsuit against me. And on top of it all, they've got a superior court judge to issue a temporary restraining order barring me from wearing the costume anywhere in the universe. I gather the legislature's even into this act. 
We well, like you. Not quite yet, but a few months ago, the California State Assembly voted uh, the chicken uh, resolution for comedy contributions to the state of California. And the uh, city council of San Diego voted the chicken a hysterical landmark of San Diego, and I've gotten the key to the city. And as you can see, it's developing quite a folk hero, and the, and the people are really getting emotionally charged out of what's going on right now. What do you actually do at a game? <laughs> well, my act as the chicken actually... Uh, calls for a lot of spontaneity and, and, and improvisational comedy. Uh, many times uh, the chicken has been compared for uh, visual comedy antics to that of Harpo Marx or even Charles Chaplin. I think the chicken has spun away out of a cocoon uh, of being a mascot. No longer a mascot. Now it's safe to say a visual comedian. Normally what I do in a sports setting or a rock and roll concert or whatever, I'll try and do something that relates to the people. Or say... Say at a baseball game, I'll do things between innings on the field or in the stands that are that could be visually uh, comedic for for the fans. I'll imitate some player. I'll imitate uh, a baseball manager arguing with an umpire. I'll mimic some fan. Do you remember how long ago this all started and what triggered it? Oh, it was back in March of 1974. I remember I was a student at San Diego State University in a radio communications class, and quite nonchalantly, some gentleman walked in from the radio station that sponsors me and, and said, hey, who wants to work for our station for just $2 an hour? We want somebody to go to the zoo and pass out little candy Easter eggs dressed up as a chicken. Well, all of us volunteered, but he looked around the room and he picked me and he says, okay, I'll take you because you'll fit the chicken suit. And what do you figure you earn today? Oh, well, it's been uh, widely quoted that uh, I make more than $50,000 a year. And that ain't... Chicken feed, right. But... Uh, <sighs> I tell you, like the New York Times says, only in America. <laughs> only in America. A Canadian boy's got to go to California for this. I get the biggest thrill out of my life is listening to 30,000 people laugh at one sitting. What, what a stimulating sound that is. It's absolutely incredible and without question. Can you make a happy chicken noise? A happy chicken noise? Bark, 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 bark. It's the only one I know. <laughs> Thanks for talking to us. Very good, Barbara. Bye now. From 1979, that was Barbara Frum speaking with Ted Giannolis, better known as the San Diego Chicken. When they're doing backflips and cartwheels and high-fiving the crowd, it's easy to forget that the real-life animal version of your favorite mascot would probably not be so friendly and entertainingly acrobatic. Take, for instance, a kangaroo. Seems like the adorable, fun-loving, and goofy-looking marsupial would make an ideal candidate to represent your team. But before you jump to any conclusions, let me remind you of the rude awakening Mick Maloney had when he and his dog Hatchie found themselves in a heavyweight fight with a seven-foot kangaroo that was absolutely jacked. Here's Neil speaking with Mr. Maloney about that terrifying tussle. I went for a walk down to the river. The three dogs were with me. I got right down to the edge where there's a whole pile of reeds uh, and bushes mm -hmm. and stuff, and I started doing some stretches. And uh, I looked down, and two of my dogs, which usually go in the water up to about their chests to drink, uh, were just standing on the edge. And then I realized that one was missing. Uh -oh. And I kept stretching for probably about a minute and a half, two minutes. And then I looked around, and Hutchie, my pup, wasn't anywhere to be seen. So I sort of adjusted where I was standing and went up to a little bit of higher ground to see if I could find him and I looked down into the river and about 15 meters out there was a the kangaroo you couldn't see the dog the dog was actually being held underwater oh no um 
Yeah, so that's so I probably this is how I I actually feel really bad about this because I'm talking two minutes of thereabouts of stretching and then you know 15 seconds of just staring at this kangaroo thinking that's odd and then the dog came up and water was just gushing out of his mouth like he was that was his and he he gave this like scream like that was his last breath type thing and that's when it took me I went this is actually happening and the funny thing is I had a friend a Brazilian guy I told him that this could happen and he didn't believe that it was a thing he thought kangaroos were cute furry little creatures that you give a pat to and uh, so I threw my car keys on the riverbank and then I went to throw my phone and I stopped went oh if I video this, he has to believe me. Like, he can't not believe me now. So you get into the water, and we're, we're seeing this yeah. in, in the video, and then the camera goes <laughs> goes crazy, and there's some background noise, because what's happening in those moments? What are you doing? Well, the whole way out, the whole like 15 meters or so out, I was making all kinds of silly noises and just being loud, trying to scare it, hoping it would let go. Then I would have got my dog and left. But I got all the way to the kangaroo, and that's when I finally got the phone working because I'm technologically inept. And I was face to face with it. And I thought, well, I threatened it. I've just now I've got to follow through. So I actually slapped it. And I'm telling you now, it's like it was like slapping a brick wall. It was solid as solid can be. Where did you slap it? What part of it? Well, it was with my right hand across the obviously the left side of its head. Mm. As soon as I did that, it let go of the dog and basically jumped. Me, like you see, its arms come out and it, it went for me. So I've uh, and, and grapplers and wrestlers will understand this. I've sort of tried to underhook with my right hand to get it around the waist. Uh, this is terrifying, sideways. Mick. You're describing it like <laughs> no big deal, but this is terrifying. Well, it, it, it was sort of funny because I no. it took me by surprise. Like this is <laughs> something this is new to me too. <laughs> so you, did it get any? Did it get any hits in? I think it technically won because, well, I got my dog back, so I'm calling that a win, but I lost a bit of skin off the arms and the shins, and uh, it must have stomped on my right forearm because that was killing me for a couple of days. I don't know if you can see in the video, but its right leg, left as you look at it, it starts to sort of bounce up and down a little bit, and what that is is a kangaroo, what they'll do is they'll rear back onto their tail, and they do a stabbing-style kick, and they've been known to disembowel dogs and stuff like that from... I thought, this is about to happen. So I splashed it and then turned. uh, And then you can't see the rest. But as I turned, I've looked back and it's lunged for me. It missed me by like six inches. It was like, and that's why I was actually laughing as I was running away. You're laughing. That wouldn't be the sound that would be coming out of most people's faces. But (laughs) that leads to the other extraordinary thing. The photograph, the still images of what you were confronted with, I thought it had been photoshopped. But it was a real picture. It's yeah, ex- yeah, it was. Um, Describe what it looks like. The kangaroo. It, it was about seven foot tall, and they've had some wildlife experts have commented. They said it was about eighty kilos. It looked like like we we often joke here, like uh, kangaroos are just deer that have been to prison. Like, you know, it, came, it was it was jacked, and it was strong. It was like I give it that. It, it, um, but kangaroo um, is pure protein there is no fat in kangaroo meat like this you know um yeah it looks like the muscles have been drawn on and it's like flexing yeah. as it looks at you yeah. it's very menacing it yeah it was <laughs> it put me to shame because i like you know i've been doing weights for a long time and <laughs> i thought well, i'm not taking my shirt off here because i'm gonna get outdone by the kangaroo That was Neil speaking with Mick Maloney after the Australian man and his dog, Hatchie, had a run-in with a hopping mad kangaroo. 
Neil, I feel like you have feelings about this story. I feel I'm still traumatized by that image. When you say the word kangaroo now, I thought it was photoshopped. I said it to the guest. I I think we never see kangaroos from that perspective, and I never hope to. No. We know that they can be dangerous, but this was... And when you say run-in... Yeah, I feel that that's a euphemism for what was happening, but we'll let our listeners decide. Well, that's true in more ways than one. Yeah. All right, let's move on. (laughs) That about does it for the October edition of the As It Happened podcast. This show was produced by John McGill, Devin Nguyen, and our technician, Reynold Gonzalez, with help from us, of course, as well as Austin Webb and Zian Iras. You can hear another special As It Happened episode in this podcast feed at the end of next month. I'm Chris Howden. And don't forget, you can also get our regular podcast every weekday right here. I'm Nika Aksal. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.